Good morning, and welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and our guest today is Tiffany Amber Moden, who is a 20-something-year-old New Yorker with a penchant for writing poetry on napkins and oversharing to strangers. After studying politics and writing at Pace University, she um, self-published her first book, A Lonely Trip Down the Rabbit Hole, in late November. Tiffany hopes to continue writing poetry about difficult topics and sharing with Uber drivers for the rest of her life and has plans to continue writing and publishing books until she finally runs out of things to say, i.e. never. Welcome, <laughs> welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start a little bit with the genesis and the um, beginnings of a, tr- a Lonely Trip Down the Rabbit Hole and how did that book come about and uh, what was the I- impetus to be self-publish it? Um, well, I started writing poetry when I was very young and uh, I I gave it up for a while. I gave it up for a while while I was in high school. Um, a bit of imposter syndrome. I felt like I wasn't good enough. But um, after high school, when I started suffering from a, a lot of depression and anxiety, I found that writing was sort of like a release valve for me. And if I could get feelings down onto paper, um, I could sort of almost then file them away and start new. So I started writing more and more poetry in a journal. Um, and eventually I decided that a lot of the things that I was feeling might be things that other people my age are feeling too. Um, so I started to put them on a poetry Instagram, which Instagram poetry is like a, an up and coming sort of uh, medium for young poets. And um, I told myself that after a while, when it started to people started to react positively, that when I wrote a hundred poems, um, I would start to put a book together. And eventually, I got to a hundred, and I did just that. I started to collect all of my poems, organize them in such a way that they told a story of what was basically the three years, a three-year period of my life. And it formed, kind of formed itself into a lonely trip down the rabbit hole. Good, good. And uh, if we could circle back also about the first poem, I believe in your book, you talk a little bit about the topic of your first poem. Uh, if you talk a little bit about kind of how your uh, process evolved from that poem to today, you know, like you're talking about, I think you remember uh, the first poem you wrote? I learned early. Uh, yeah, I think also the first poem, uh, MLK, I believe you Oh, were, yeah. when I was young. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. When I was in first grade, um, I wrote a, a poem. We all had to we all had to write a little thing, I think, about Martin Luther King Jr. And I wrote this cute little poem um, that my teacher loved and ended up turning into a little song that we sang on Martin oh, nice. Luther King Day. And I won this little contest that she entered. And really just that... Uh, that feeling of uh, of pride that I felt um, was kind of the beginning of me wanting to be a writer and wanting to consider myself a writer and falling in love with writing and sharing writing with people. It was just such such a great feeling to feel at six, um, like I had created something that meant something to other people. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, as you started to grow older, your uh, how did your topics or themes change, or how did your well, how did you incorporate themes or what would you say is your principal themes of, of your work? <laughs> well, when I was younger, I definitely wrote mostly about love and heartbreak. Uh-huh. Um, in high school, those were pr- my principal feelings, I would say. I uh-huh. uh, cared mostly about that romance. Um, but uh, in college, 
um, I really started to write about anxiety and I find finding different ways to sort of um, to explain not only to other people, but to myself what anxiety was that I was feeling in the book. I often compare anxiety to a monster that I go back and forth between feeling like the monster is a separate entity to feeling like it's a part of me. And that's something I'm not sure I've really figured out yet. But now I think I write a lot more about um, mental illness and I write about um, abuse and sexual violence, uh, things I've experienced and the things that women in their of all ages really um, have experienced. Yeah. And definitely finding pathways for healing and finding pathways to overcome or finding pathways to yeah. is a great way, great way to introduce readers and through poetry to those pathways yeah um a lot of people suffer from these things in secret and i've found that there's a strength to coming out and saying this happened to me or i feel this way and then having other people say that's happened to me too i felt that way too um makes you feel so much less alone and it's such a great and important part of the healing process yeah so now um, we were talking a little bit about the philosophies and uh, thought systems that influenced you. If you talk a little bit about kind of how your journey has been helped by or aided by different philosophical systems or religious systems and uh, um, how that kind of evolved over the years. Sure. So, um, I mean, <laughs> as far as philosophies go, a lot of my poetry is influenced by um, feminism and my connection to women and sisterhood um, and activism and, um, you know, all of, the, all of the important social issues that are going on. There's a section of my book that where a lot of the poetry is about that. Um, but personally, I, over the years, have developed um, a belief. I, I've been studying Wicca because I think it is the closest thing to what I believe. Um, and it is this oneness with nature and the universe and this this need to maintain a balance because within me, I've always felt um, this lack of balance or emo this lack of emotional balance, mental balance, uh, all part of suffering from mental illness. And, um, you know, the people say when they go out into nature that they feel so much better, they feel so much lighter. There really is an energy um, in nature that can be harnessed and can be used um, to strengthen ourselves. And I've found that rather than looking to a, a God um, for strength, I find strength in the earth and the sky and all the life-giving forces. Um, I compare women to earth a lot because both give life. Um, and to me, that's something that I worship. Um, just the idea that I am, I in a way uh, am almost a kindred spirit of the earth itself. Good, good. And um, in your book, you know, it's really great. Uh, you have some illustrations. Uh, you know, it's something that's very interesting to couple with the poems. So if you tell us a little bit about like kind of how those illustrations came about, who'd you work with or. So my yeah. illustrator is um, this local artist uh, named Celeste Michaels. Um, she's fantastic. She's traveled the world. She's extremely talented. Um, I grew up with her. Um, and I watched her grow and flourish into this really abstract artist. And, 
you know, when I approached her to do the illustrations for the book, I said to her, um, you know, some of the other poetry books that were coming out around the time had sort of these like very flowery, light sort of pictures. And I said, you know, my poetry is more raw and a lot of it is um, tense and there's a lot of anger and emotion and I really want the illustrations to reflect that. And then poems that were more about sensuality and and the body, I want bodies. I mm. want I want real bodies. And um, we decided to use this um, symbol of this red string. Um, and on the cover of the book, the red string is co- is connected to the girl's foot that is falling down the rabbit hole. Mm. Um, and throughout the book, there are illustrations where you see the red string whether it's tied around an illustration or it flows through an illustration, but the string is kind of what always grounds the um, the female that you see throughout the book, and eventually the string is what carries her back out of the rabbit hole. Good, good. Thank you, thank you. It was very interesting. I think I think I I captured that because I was reading through parts of the book and it really captured that aspect. So it was very good. Uh, so I was talk a little bit about your poetic influences and who you, who you read over growing up and, and now, um, you know, how they've influenced you and, and what uh, schools um, of poetry mm-hmm. do you follow? Yeah. So when I was younger and in school, um, we studied a lot of the um, classical poets like John Keats and Lord Byron and Walt Whitman, um, which their poetry is beautiful and um, there's a reason why they are the most famous poets of all time. But I I felt like a poet inside, but I also knew that my writing style was nothing like that, which was discouraging for a while. Um, and then as I got older, I started to read a more contemporary poetry. Um, one of my... In, I should say E.E. E. Cummings was the first poet that I ever really loved because... He broke rules as far as grammar goes and and phrasing, which is something that I incorporate in my poetry. I love the way that he, um, in a way for him, it's the, he can convey so much and so little. Um, and then Sylvia Plath was extremely important to me as I was coming of age because she wrote openly about her mental illness. Um, and she wrote about her life the way that it really was and her struggles and feeling trapped. And that was, and Victoria Woolf as well. They were women who encouraged me to be honest. And then the contemporary poets that I love, um, there's one, her name is Olivia Gatwood, and she writes in the most honest, raw, almost the way she speaks because she does a lot of spoken word. Um, and to, together, these poets that have are more in the last 20 or 30 years have showed me that there isn't one way to write poetry. There's so many different ways. And I can write the way that I think or the way that I feel. And I can look at a page and use space and use phrasing and use and, and curse if I want to and and say whatever to get my message across. Um, and that's been so important. I think that this movement that we've been experiencing of individualism and freedom and the angst that of the last 40 years has really kind of helped foster 
that feeling of freedom. Yeah. And I know uh, we were talking a little bit about education and how so important, the importance of education, the importance of, um, you know, poetry is something that sometimes is de-emphasized, in, at least in my education. Yeah. It's something you have to kind of learn on your own, or if they do teach it, it's very kind of rudimentary, and, you know, it's not really emphasized. But um, I understand you had studied in undergraduate, you studied um, some education policy, you focused a little bit on education policy or interest of yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I studied um, political science with a uh, concentration on public policy. But my my passion in that area has always lied in education. I strongly believe that education is the root of so many of our problems in this country, that if every child was able to receive in equal opportunities and equal education and um, it didn't it didn't matter where you live or how you grew up or what your race is, you still had access to the same information, the same true information, and we could send more people to college and encourage more people to follow their passions, to even develop a passion, um, that we would find so much less hate because I, I really do think that hate is rooted in just the, the lack of education and being afraid of what you don't know. Um, so I've always been a proponent of education reform and um, having a more emphasis on just having a country where we want our teachers to be the best. We want our students to be engaged. We want them to want to continue to learn. We don't want anyone to feel like school is not for them. I hate people who say, oh, school is just not for me. Because the only reason that they feel that way is because right now school is only done one way. Mm. Um, but if we expanded education to fit, um, rather than try and fit everybody into a box, if we just found a way to reach every individual, like their brain mattered, Mm. then we would find a generation of people who want to learn and want to know more and want to read and write. And, um, I think that if that were happening, we would have a much more peaceful and understanding society. Yeah, I know that in education theory, they talk about like multiple intelligences and mm-hmm. various theories like that that are just starting to become in the past few years, yeah. starting to become more prevalent and putting to practice. So it's something that, that had been de-emphasized earlier, but then, uh, you know, I think it was Einstein, I think, who had the quote, uh, uh, if the fish, uh, if you judge a, a fish based on how it can climb a tree, you're kind of missing Exactly. Point. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> not only students, but... But teachers as well, I mean, we give teachers a hard time in this country, but the reality is that in in the countries where students do the best, um, like Finland, for example, mm. you know, they the teachers are revered the, at the same level as doctors, and they, they are educated to the max, and they become teachers because it, it's their passion, whereas we have a lot of people who become teachers because other careers didn't work out for them. Yeah. And, and a, te- a teacher like that is never going to go that extra mile to help a student who learns differently. Um, I think it's so important that we treasure teachers and that we – we make them feel like they matter and that they are the, some of the most important people in the society because they are raising our children. Yeah, definitely there's been a, in this country, there's a very big, big imbalance. You know, we have spent billions and billions of dollars in defense and, mm-hmm. and the military. 
Whereas very little is invested in education comparatively. Yeah. Yeah. And very little research yeah. done into how to choose, how to fix education and what needs to be done. And, you know, every time we try to do some sort of education reform, it's it's way too across the board. It doesn't take into into effect like the um the regional differences around the country, you know, the the economic differences between schools. It, yeah, it would be great if we could have one curriculum if every school were equal. Yeah. But the curriculum that works for a wealthy school in Westchester is not going to work for a school that has almost no budget in Queens. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, it seems like we're afraid to take that big step to just sort of start all over again and figure out a new system, which I think is what what needs to be done. Yeah. And also it seems like they put so much emphasis on, you know, um, you know, individuals have to navigate themselves and, and very much, you know, they too much emphasis whereas they need the guys, they need that that teacher to mm-hmm. guide them through the process and help them and the students, I mean. Exactly. And yeah, a lot not you know, we come to from a place where you know everyone has the privilege of having a supportive you know, family that encourages mm-hmm. reading or something like that. Mm-hmm. So being able to do that through the education system is so important. And, and, uh, and, you know, only reason why I think, uh, you know, we have success rates in, uh, certain areas is that the, this, the family structure is so important. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I just, I've always found it so unfair that two, two students who are equal in mind and equal in, um, enthusiasm, could have two completely different experiences because the schools, the public schools that they go to um, are so different in the opportunities that they offer. You know, one school might have a ton of of AP classes and a ton of of extracurriculars and can afford to hire better teachers. And then there could be a school that where in the different town, a town where I grew up, you could go 15 minutes. The next town over could have none of those things. And then when it comes time for college, you know, obviously the student that had more opportunities is going to look better on paper. Um, yeah. And it doesn't take into consideration the fact that they're the student in the other school could be just as good, but was not as well prepared and didn't have access to all of those same opportunities and all of the all excellent teaching and excellent material. Um, and I just find that so unfair because most children don't get to choose. Um, and it just feels like they don't have control over their own futures. And to me, um, that's such a mistake that we're making as a society. Yeah. So this kind of ties into the question and the interview question about if society were exactly as you imagined it. You know, what would it look like? What would it feel like? How do we act? What would we be? So, um, you know, I think that definitely there's something that talk about, you know, as individuals, we're trying to shape that society. We're trying to put out material. We're trying to uh, connect with our communities. So uh, tell us a little bit about how the society would look like or if it was ideal. <laughs> um, I would love to see a society in which every individual person um not only feels comfortable being who they are, but is given the space and the time and the freedom to develop who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would love to see a society free of repression and oppression um, and one where we are all able to contribute um, in our own way, 
what is what our strengths are and what is best about us. Um, I, I of course would love to see a society where we're tolerant and peaceful, where we can have conversations and exchange different ideas and, and also a society in which we have a much greater appreciation for nature and for the world around us. Um, and where we are, I feel, I feel like humanity is becoming more and more distant from earth and from nature and grass and trees and mountains. And and I would love to see a society in which we move back into appreciating um, what is around us that is free, that mm. that has just been, you know, given to us. Um, earth is such a gift and I would love to see a society where we flourish on it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I definitely hear that, that, um, you know, we're building more and more, uh, separating ourselves from our natural environment. Mm -hmm. We're kind of creating structures that are more and more, um, you know, uh, you know, not, not integrated, mm -hmm. not integrated as well as they could be. So, uh, and, and, and as we start to create more and more problems in the natural world, it seems like we're destroying the very ground that we walk on. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what about for you personally, what, what would be your, um, ideal self and what are you striving towards for yourself and uh, looking towards or as we approach the new year, maybe any resolutions or any things that you want to <laughs> work course. on? Yeah. I am forever trying to achieve inner peace and balance. Mm. Um, I am always either down too down too high or too, too angry or, or too disconnected. Um, and I would love to just find it an internal equilibrium um, where I feel at peace um, with myself, and I feel like, content with myself. Um, I feel like I'm I'm always nothing is ever good enough for me. I'm always trying to do better, which is good, of course, to always be trying to do better and always trying to improve. But I feel like I am never just happy with who I am and what I have done so far and who I have become. Um, and I would love to be able to look in the mirror and like who I am and feel proud of who I am. Yeah. Um, that's something that I still struggle with. So that that's something that I would like. Um, I would like also to, and I think my New Year's resolution um, is to connect more with other people. Um, I've always struggled with commitment and connection, human connection. Um, I've kind of been a lone wolf. And, you know, I, I've been burned a lot. And I think that when, um, when enough people hurt you, you kind of develop that little wall around mm. you. Um, but I found that, that that wall causes a lot of loneliness. Mm. Um, a lonely trip down the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> So um, my New Year's resolution is to rekindle relationships that I may have let go um, and to develop new relationships. And just I think the one thing that my life is missing right now um, is other people. Mm. And uh, and that's what I want right now more than anything is to surround myself with love uh, and friends. Excellent goal. Excellent goal. I think it's really great to strive towards and self-care and and self-achievement self-fulfillment uh achieving that potential that we have inside yeah. of ourselves and trying to actualize that 
So speaking of which, why don't we uh, go to a couple of poems from your book? Sure. So why don't we, uh, you can set them up as you'd like and, and read a few of the, uh, the poems that kind of representational of the book so people to get a yeah. sense of it. Yeah. Um, okay. So the first poem that I'm going to read, um, it, it kind of reflects a lot of what we were talking about, um, um, earth and, and my feelings about, um, women as, as life-giving forces and earth as life-giving force. Um, and, um, and the way that I feel spiritually and it's called God as a woman. Um, the truth is God is a woman, a woman, not so different from us, wild and wide eyed with passion, a vision for eternal life born out of unity, guided by a dream she once had of love and lost in her desire to bestow upon us a gift, a fire in our hearts. She gave us the ecstasy of lust. But this divine goddess believed she must design her ideal companion before designing the image of her ideal self. And how could she know? Oh, it was only in hindsight that she was able to recognize the perfection in her own reflection, the wholeness of her femininity, and the kindred spirits that become of woman and earth when left undisturbed. But it was too late then when she realized her true companion was the breath of nature all around her, the universe within her, the benevolent power of the mother. She had always been whole, never alone. And upon first glance at savage man, his madness in devouring her worth, enslaving her soul and eclipsing her essence, his fury in suppressing her purpose to distract from the absence of his own, she shook in agony as man placed woman beneath him and asserted the right to her universe. Tears rained from the goddess grieving eyes and the heart of woman was broken for the very first time. Thank you, thank you. Sure. Very nice. Um, you want me to read another one? Yeah, read another one. I'll try and read a more, yeah. more positive one. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so this one is called We Are the Movement, um, and it is a, a reflection of my activist soul. <laughs> I know it feels as though no one is listening. The world is crumbling and everyone's at home watching The Bachelor. I know. Day in and day out, your right to choose, your right to love, your right to live is debated by strangers who will never know your name. I know. But you are not alone in this. Your pain is shared by millions who are just as lost as you. Who can we trust when the odds are stacked against us? Your strength is admired, your resilience is treasured, and I promise you, Angel, we are in this together. We will defend you, protect you. When the world has turned its back on you, we will not give up on you. The road is long, I know. The wounds are fresh, I know. But we are a force to be reckoned with. And as long as you hold love in your heart, you can trust. You are one of us, and we are the movement. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, thank you. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think I get themes of like the goddess and the feminine, and as well as the social, political. Yeah. And um, you know, in our previous one of our previous episodes, we talked a little bit about how you know femininity is long. You know, at least in this in the patriarchal side, it's kind of associated, kind of muted, and 
you know, push down. So and the importance of resurgence of that. Yeah. And, you know, in, in all beings, you know, men or women being able to value, um, you know, the, the, the feminine and not push it down, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And redefining what, what femininity is. I have, a, I have a poem in my book um, called femininity and it, it's, it's written um, sort of like a, uh, a dictionary sort of style of what is feminine. Um, you know, it's like to be, be smart, but not too smart and, um, you know, be, you know, sweet, but not too sweet. And, yeah. and you can never be. And I just think that we need to redefine what, what is feminine and what is not feminine there? Because right now I feel like femininity is seen as lesser than masculinity. Mm. Um, things that are feminine are weak and fragile. Mm. Um, and a woman's femininity is neither weak nor fragile. Mm. Um, and you can be feminine and still be a feminist at the yeah. same time. Um, and you can be not feminine at all and still be a woman, mm. you know? Um, there's there's so many different ways to be a woman. Um, and just the ability to give life is not a woman's sole and, and most important purpose. Mm. Um, it is, it's a purpose that I think is beautiful. Um, but even I'm not sure if I want to have children. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't make me less of a woman, which I think is something it's getting better now, but definitely during like the second wave of feminism, um, having children was seen as a woman's like, like prime duty. Yeah. Um, and now it's just opening the world to give women all the same opportunities as men. And they may have them now, but I don't think um, in this country, at least, they, it may seem out on the outside as though we have all the same opportunities, but, but we are not shown the same respect and we are not given the same path. Our path is much longer and much more difficult um, than the, a path that a man would take to the same end. Mm. Um, and that's where I think our work needs to be done, of course, in other countries. Um, it's still so much harder and there's still even more work that needs to be done. Um, but that doesn't mean that here in the land of the free, we can't still be working on trying to make ourselves better. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, the, the attributes that are commonly referred to as masculine tend to be louder and they tend to be more, you know, and sometimes being louder, being aggressive, aggressive and such. And these kinds of things are not always, um, even though you can hear them loudly, mm -hmm. you know, soft voice sometimes can also be very powerful. And yeah. being able to recognize that, um, you know, that a, a roar is not always, you know, the, the, the greatest thing in the world. Speak, you know? yeah. speak softly, yeah, carry speak, a big stick. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and masculine qualities like loudness and confidence and aggression. And, and uh, those are all... Um, often associated with leadership qualities, yeah. where where the quote unquote feminine character traits um, are not considered, um, you know, beneficial to become a leader. And I think that that's per first of all so silly because yeah. I don't think that there are character traits that um, 
are you can ascribe to men or ascribe to women mm. in, in general. There yeah. are men that speak softly and have no interest in leadership and feel insecure. And there are women who are loud and powerful and aggressive. Mm. Um, and it's that to me is such a silly concept, but I just think the, the, the lack of female leadership in the, in the business world, um, in the political world has to do with the fact that people are so trained to believe that a woman by nature is unfit to lead. Yeah. And I think that that is a, a thought process that needs to be completely flipped around because it's been proven untrue. Yeah, we, I think as society, we're starting to slowly get in the cusp of, you know, undermining kind of how gender can express itself. And I mean, it's, been, it's kind of undercurrent for a number of years, but now I'm starting to see more and more in public discourse that, we're moving towards non-binary solutions yeah. and it's a and, spectrum. Yeah, yeah it's a spectrum, rather yeah. than it being this binary sort of you're this or you're this. Um, we're finally allowing people the freedom to be this or this or anything in between. Yeah, good, good. So, um, also about what were some defining like we're talking about your own life and 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 coming up to this mm-hmm. point of realization. If you talk a little bit more about the defining moments and. Uh, some some significant uh, life events that maybe sure. helped mold you, yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the life events that have molded me um, have not necessarily been positive. Uh huh. Um, I mean, I think that as a in high school, I did a lot of theater, and um, being on stage, I think, gave me a, a sense of self confidence and um, and the comfort in front of people that would mm. help me later. But um, but really, I think what has molded me most and what has left such a great impact on me um, was I grew up um, the child of um, addicts. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of had to grow up kind of fast. And um, independence and self-sufficiency became big values to me i really i wasn't i wasn't taught traditional values i I mostly got those from books and movies mm. but um but growing up taking care of myself a lot um made me s- sort of the strong and independent person that i am today um and then of course there was a time where that was challenged um when i was 18 i unfortunately was in an abusive relationship um and that was an experience that sort of um deconstructed my entire spirit and and made me feel like i wasn't strong and that i and that i was weak and afterward i did, how could i let that happen to me i i thought i was supposed to be so strong and and i guess i'm not and um it has taken years for me to reconstruct my spirit and and be the strong person that I um, always was and always have been. I just kind of lost my way for a while, but I think that that experience was kind of my my entry into adulthood. It was the first thing that I really experienced, like on my own, without family, you know, knowing anything about it, and um, and I and I learned more than anything um, how to pick up red flags, how to speak up for myself. And now I write about um, 
about abuse and about sexual violence and and topics like that 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 other people might shy away from but I always say if I can make one woman feel less alone or if I can if I can help one young woman see red flags before it's too late then my experience will have been worth it excellent excellent yeah I think definitely I think when we think about uh developing our own inner strength and our own abilities and uh, on our own we, when we go off into the world and we're not uh, necessarily under the uh, um, guidance or guidance of our, of our caregivers. You know, we're going off to college, we're going off to mm-hmm. kind of embarking the world. We think about strength training. You know, nobody would think about, you know, if a weight trainer were lifting up a, a large weight and, and, and feeling uh, maxed out, you know, they don't, they don't give up. They keep going for yeah. larger and larger weights. So I think definitely in my mind, inner strength training is like that. You yeah. know, there's sometimes when we, you know, are challenged and we feel we can't do this, mm-hmm. but then slowly, slowly we build up that ability to handle uh, more complex and more subtle yeah. areas. Yeah, yeah. And you either sink or you float. Yeah. Um, and I, or sink or swim. Sink or swim. Yeah. And I, I, I swam. Yeah. Good. Good. And this is, it's really great to think of it in that narrative that, the story's not over until you know we we gain that if it's not if it's not um with the saying something about if it's it's not over until you know you you if it's, if it's it's not a happy ending then it's not over uh, I, yeah. I really have felt like yeah. this book um was sort of me closing that chapter of yeah. my life when yeah, yeah. putting putting it all down into this book is me saying okay that period of my life that pain that i felt that challenge to my strength um, that fall down the rabbit hole <laughs> mm. is it's over now. It concludes. There is an epilogue. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And that means that it's over and it's time to start anew. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. So um, also we were talking a little bit about, um, let's see, what are the topics going up for you? Like just talking about your writing practice. How, where are you going from now? Uh, what are you working on now? That, that where's the direction of your writing practice? So I've already begun working on my second book. Uh-huh. Um, it's called um, Somewhere Close to Elsewhere, and it's a book um, composed entirely of poetry based on my dreams. Okay. Um, and it really started because I I would occasionally post these poems that I would write about my dreams, but they were very abstract, mm. and I found that. Um, on their own, people um, weren't really getting them because yeah. they they were kind of like, "What does this mean?" And <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I realized that the best way um, for me to be able to write th- this poetry about my dreams is to have it all together in the context of everything you're about to read is a dream is mm. of something from my subconscious mind. And then I think it's a lot easier to mm. um, <laughs> to understand and to take in. And this book is going to be a little less heavy, a lot more ethereal, surreal, um, a lot more exploring the imagination. Um, and then other than that, I've been starting to read uh, a lot of, um, plays. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished, and I should have read this years ago, but I just finished reading The Glass uh, Menagerie and waiting for uh, Godot. Godot. Godot, Godot, Godot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, I have started to read, uh, you know, I read a, a while back The Crucible and Shrikar Named Desire and mm-hmm. um, 
a bunch of um I was in a bunch of Neil Simon plays when I was uh, in high school and um I I want to experiment with playwriting. I'd love to take yeah. a playwriting course. Um because I do want to expand um po- poetry is obviously my um my main medium, but I really want to try and find a way to um <clears throat> bring poetry to the stage. Sort of like do you remember that film for Colored Girls? Uh I think I I have heard of it. It yeah. was this film, it was this beautiful film. Um, and it was it, all of the dialogue basically. I wish I could remember the, the poet's name, but the dialogue was all poetry for the yeah. most part, and it was based on this this poet's work. Um, and they would speak to each other in like these beautiful poetry. And I really want to um, experiment with writing a writing dialogue and and writing scenes that are expressed in in a poetic manner yeah something so satisfying i think about with writing um plays because then you get a chance to involve other people yeah. and a community and having them perform it yeah and it takes on a whole new life when it when it goes on stage exactly I yeah and i also love um as someone who has um acted and and read a lot of books and is a film buff um i love characters yeah character development and and creating i've written some short stories and things like that and i i love creating characters um and fleshing them out and making them unique but relatable and that's something you know because my my poetry for the most part you know the the speaker is me Mm. um but i would love to give voice to some other characters as well yeah, I think that also in, in film and in, and theater, there's many avenues to this is naturalistic, you know, where we, we follow a plot and follow a normal thing with, uh, you know, a normal kind of representational um, reality, uh, kind of mimicking how we interpret, how we actually interpret the reality. But there's also many avenues for the dreamlike interpretation mm-hmm. in, in theater and film where we're able to get alternative views on uh, surrealistic or... Yeah. These kind of ethereal, all these kinds of aspects of um, of the way of, of interpreting our lives, interpreting, giving alternatives to those things. Yeah, yeah. having yeah. and having flawed narrators. Yeah, and yeah, and I mean, I when I think of surreal, I always think of I was in Pippin yeah. in high school, yeah. which is one of the craziest, most <laughs> surreal plays. But even you know, the Glass Menagerie is is a um, what they call a dream uh, or a memory play. Memory play, yeah. Uh, which I I have been reading about a lot, and I think is a, a fascinating way to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's so amazing how even in memory gets mixed into dreams and and mixed into kind of a, almost like a, an alternative way of interpreting yeah our lives or our memories. Yeah, it's because yeah. you know when we remember things, we remember them. Uh, you know what stood out to us might not be the same thing that stood out to someone else who experienced the same thing, mm. and we choose to remember what's what was the most important part of that experience for us. Um, so, in a memory play, you know the what you see might not be exactly what happened. Mm. It's how the person who's telling the story interpreted and chose to remember that yeah. experience, which is just as important. Um, because all the all the past is are, are stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, you know. Yeah, on a very technical level, I think that they call it uh, an imprint. 
that's left in your mental continuum. Yeah. So whatever experience we have, it leaves an imprint on right. our mind. And uh, and how those imprints uh, form like almost like a color in uh, in our mental continuum that then colors our, our future experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. We, and when we associate colors and smells yeah. with certain things that from the past for what might be no reason, but there is a reason. It's just like a subconscious sort of thing. Yeah. 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 I remember I just uh, I woke up this morning. I had the. A very strange dream that uh, a spirit had had, had haunted the the apartment. It was haunting the apartment, oh my gosh. <laughs> and like he, the spirit had come down and was like a little upset about something. It was it was, very, <laughs> it was I was trying to be like uh, negotiating with the spirit because I was in the bed and I was trying to negotiate with the spirit, saying that you know I would yeah. maintain it, and, and just thinking about how it just made me reflect on how you know my own situation. I'm renting, and how yeah. you know many people move through these oh, apartments. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And how the yeah, basically like how this spirit had been lingering from yeah. previously. Yeah. See, this is why yeah. I am writing a book about my dreams. Yeah. Because they dreams and dream interpretations can be so important um to accessing emotions that yeah. might not be at the surface yet. Yeah. But that you thoughts and feelings that subconsciously you could be having. Um dreams can be a really important source of information of getting to know yourself. Yeah. For sure. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's so crazy. I, I too, I've been having a lot of dreams lately, people from my past coming back to me, which is how I know that, um, my, my new year's resolution is that I need to uh, reconnect with some people because I keep having recurring dreams about the same people that I'm, I'm not in contact with anymore. And yeah. like, well, obviously my brain is telling me something. <laughs> Maybe it's telling me I miss them. Yeah. You know? That's good. That's good. Yeah, it's good to always uh, strive towards community and try to connect and and find. Yeah, I think that dreams also like the uh, our, you know, we think about our waking life and then our dream life as being the uh, stark divide. Actually, mm -hmm. they're very interconnected, and uh, you know we learn both about we learn a lot about both from the other, mm -hmm. and also um, you know uh, in the very traditional Buddhist idea that you know if we accept the dream world is real, then we have to if we accept. The dream is unreal. We have to accept the waking world is unreal as well. That they're very totally intimately connected. So if reality yeah. is 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 just, um, you know, our brains projecting yeah. something to us, then what makes the dream world any less real? Exactly, exactly. Because there's always a dreamlike quality to yeah. waking world as well. That we we way we. we Interact with the independence of their yeah. own mind, how each experience is dependent upon yeah. our own imprints. And yeah. hardly ever in dreams do we question the nature of, of the reality, even though it's not, um, even though it's only a dream um, in that moment. We're usually fully confident that it's really happening until we wake up and realize yeah. that it wasn't. Um, so who's to say that right now is not a dream? Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has a. You know this dreamlike quality to it. The nature of uh, reality is permeable or, or uh, yeah. bendable, and that um, you know we're going to be uh, everything we experience has a kind of plastic. I think yeah, call it plastic. And that's plastic, that's an yeah. idea that I definitely want to um, experiment with in my new book. Is the nature of reality good? Good. Sure. So you'll be having a reading from 
a lonely uh, trip down the rabbit hole in January. Yes. If you tell us, if you announce a little bit about that. And then... Yeah. So it was originally supposed to be November 30th, which was the release date of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it had to be rescheduled. Um, Santa came yeah. down the street that night. So uh-huh. we had to reschedule. So now it's going to be um, the second weekend in January. And it's not only my release event um, where I will be reading poetry and talking about um, topics like domestic abuse and sexual violence and addiction and mental illness, et cetera. Um, but we also are, we want it to be a, a celebration of um, art across multiple mediums. So I'll also be having live music. There, um, my illustrator will be um, selling big prints of some of the um, full-page illustrations in the book as well as some of her own work. I asked there might be some other artists there. Um, It's going to be a a really beautiful experience, I'm hoping, um, to really connect with some some souls in the room and and to, um, to have some of the people that come be able to relate to the music, to the poetry, to the artwork. Um, and I, I want everybody to feel um, like they are part of art and creativity. So I'm really, really excited for that event. And I'm really excited to finally present my book to um, it's in my hometown. Excellent. So I'm really proud. A lot of people that I've grown up with who've known me since I was little, one of the performers um, that, that it's um, performing that evening um, was the host of one of the very first open mics I ever attended um, mm. and has remained a good friend of mine over the years. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a big deal to me to, to have the people that um, the people that raised me, the village that raised me um, to kind of be able to show them, this is what I've done and brought back to you. Excellent, excellent. So also in March, the last Thursday, actually, in Forest Hills Library, uh, Queens Library Forest Hills, we have a open mic and featured reader series uh, every last Thursday of the month, but we'll be featuring you in March, the last Thursday of March. Uh, so anyone uh, interested in hearing you or uh, isn't able to make January can make it in March. Super Listen exciting. to you read from the, uh, the book and uh, talk a little bit about your uh, experiences. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. I will be... Uh, Winding down, I just want to tell everyone that this is Radio Free Brooklyn, um, the Truth to Power show. Um, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. To help support our mission, I invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps, helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Once again, that's uh, readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, if you want to keep up with our uh, programs and activities, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And you can find out about things like the after school program, which is going to be launching in 2019 to teach uh, media literacy through media making using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals for local teens. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after school. And remember once again that all donations are tax deductible. So, um, you know, I, I actually, I'm going to be playing a song going, leading us out. Um, I saw the, the uh, preview or the, the uh, trailer for the movie Vice, 
which apparently is about um, uh, Vice President Dick Cheney. <laughs> so, and the song though was uh, quite interesting, quite interesting, and quite uh, quite a good thing. It's the Killers, um, the man. So uh, I'll go out with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah.